Hey everyone, welcome to No BS. I'm Christina. I'm Danielle. And we have on a special guest today. Her name is McKenna. And Hi. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. And she is a psychologist that we have connected with. And we are really excited to have her on here and have her talk a little bit about what she does. Yeah. So without further ado, we're going to have our, our guest share a little bit about who she is and what she does. And McKenna, give us some background. Cool. Yeah, so I'm a counseling psychologist, which means that I went to school for about 5,000 years. <laughs> and <laughs> that student loan debt's really racking up. So I'm a psychologist. I have worked in a lot of different settings, so different hospitals. I've worked in corrections. I've worked with community mental health, um, college students, and now I'm in the VA setting. Um, and I've been doing that for a couple years now. And yeah, I've, I have different specializations, I guess, or people seek consultation from me whenever they have a complex case, especially assessment. Like they can't really figure out what's going on. Um, really teasing things apart. Also people come to me if there are questions about, cultural pieces that are involved. Um, so one of the things that I specialize in is uh, health disparities or social determinants of health, especially in therapy and the medical system. And those are the big ones and somewhat for severe mental illness too. So like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, stuff like that. Wow. That's a lot of different things <laughs> and a lot of really awesome experience. Yeah, I don't, I, I try to, whenever people ask, oh, what do you specialize in? And I'm like, well, I guess I'll just go by what people come to me for, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm a generalist, so I work in general mental health. And so we see a little bit of everything. And so you kind of have to be, kind of got to be ready for whatever just kind of walks in your door. Yeah. So were you in outpatient setting? So both. I'm working, so I'm on a fellowship right now. And so that means I get to work in a lot of different clinics at one time. And so most of my time is in an outpatient setting in a rural area. But I also work in kind of the main VA hub here in the inpatient unit. And I also work in a multicultural clinic as well. Very cool. Very cool. Just can you give us a little bit of like what your day to day looks like? Ooh, you- yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So this spot was really cool because it's basically a design your own fellowship. You really get to make pretty much your own schedule. And there are a lot of different opportunities. It's a, a, it's a bigger VA setting. So I spend three days out of the week in general outpatient. So basically people will go to primary care first. So they'll go and see, you know, just a physician and they'll say, you know, I'm having mental health issues. And then they may see a psychologist in that setting and then they come see us. So we're kind of the second stop, occasionally the first stop for therapy. And so I see a little bit of everything. I tend to prefer the cases that um, (laughs) other people don't want as much. Uh, So I love Give me all of the people that are super angry. Um, I love working with, quote, personality disorders. I hope that we come up with a different idea of how to word that and and really phrase that. Mm -hmm. Substance use. Okay. And, of course, a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then I spend one day a week in the inpatient unit. So people that are in acute care because, you know, maybe they – attempted suicide or um, were really thinking about it and there's a lot of distress or maybe they check themselves in because they're having a manic episode or something. And then I spend one day a week in half of that is in the multicultural clinic and then half is really working on research and kind of an administrative project. So it's kind of a breakdown of the, the week, I guess. And then day to day, it really kind of depends by the clinic. Outpatient, it's pretty much it's been a little tricky in the pandemic because primary care hasn't been quite as open. And so most of my referrals have come from like my own team, like psychiatry and stuff like that. So it's been a little different, but yeah, I mean, day to day, sometimes we have trainings. Most of the time it's either I'm doing groups or, you know, seeing clients, um, other just random stuff that pops up. Cause I know we've talked about 
you know, just randomness, <laughs> randomness <laughs> pops up and you got to be ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that probably sums it up. Wow. So there's a lot going on every single day for you. For the most part. Yeah. <laughs> Some days are a little quieter than others, especially right now. Um, the outpatient clinic I'm in is pretty small. And so sometimes, you know, that depends, especially because I'm limited on where I can get referrals. Mm-hmm. I mean, just right now. But yeah, for the most part, it's it's pretty busy, I would say. Yeah, I always prefer to be busy anyway. So I think Me too. <laughs> I do too, to a point. But yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's hard to even like, f- like find a place to start with questions. There's so you, much. Yeah, you cover so much. But um, especially, I guess, working in in a VA setting, that's got to be pretty challenging. And I would imagine that with like veterans, you're dealing with a lot of stigma surrounding mental health care. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think with the younger generations coming in or the younger cohorts, it's getting a little more open, but yeah, absolutely. And also because I'm working in a rural setting, it may take there's more stigma and so then by time people may feel comfortable or that they have really no other choice but to come and do therapy they may have a lot more symptoms than at that point or maybe the symptoms are more severe so yeah there's definitely a lot of stigma there's also like we have to do a lot of education on basically understanding that therapy is really their choice and how it should look Um, because a lot of times, I mean, obviously veterans are used to the military where they're, there's, it's a very hierarchical structure kind of following orders and stuff like that, or they're used to medical care, which thankfully this model is kind of changing, but it's, you know, tends to be very paternalistic, very meaning like very top down, like you go to the doctor, right. And they like tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that's like super helpful, right? Like if I have an infection, like I need to know what antibiotic I need to take, Um, and then with therapy, it's just different, you know, I mean, you guys know this, right? Like you get to choose, okay, what is, what does therapy look like for you? And so for, for a lot of people, that's actually one of the hardest parts is learning. Oh, like I have a lot of say in this, but I don't know what I don't know to like say something about what I want. Do you find that your progress is inhibited by the stigmas that surround mental health care, especially with like your population? Um, to some extent. Yeah. I would imagine, again, I haven't worked with active duty. I would imagine it's more intense with active duty, especially because sometimes there's, I mean, there really is external consequences potentially, like if you're seeking mental health care. So when you're a veteran, I mean, obviously you don't have to worry about that part as much, but a lot of it's really ingrained and there are definitely some common complaints. Uh, probably I think the most common one is sleep issues, which are usually started in the military because of, I mean, various things. And so that one's, you know, it takes a while to kind of make progress on that. Of course, like trauma and depression, substance use is a big one. Um, And then a lot of underlying medical conditions, which could be interacting with mental health concerns. Like I've had people who have had like very random brain injuries or tumors or or all kinds of random stuff. Um, And I've worked in medical settings before, but um, it's just been really interesting to, to kind of see like that unique piece Mm -hmm. and how that interacts, interacts with like them being able to, to do therapy. And so sometimes it hinders it. There's a unique part about trauma, for example, like combat related trauma. And I'm, I don't specialize in trauma. And so I don't know how much I can speak on this. I have done trauma therapy, but um, and with veterans, it's it's unique because if it's combat-related trauma, that can be kind of used or, like, kind of worn as valor, right? Like, right. like this is – and so that's really tough to kind of wrestle with. And how do I make room for this? How do I make room for the fact that it's causing me a lot of distress and stuff like that? And um, so, yeah, there are a lot of unique pieces to this and usually a lot of different moving parts kind of coming into play Absolutely. And I I'd probably say the same thing about corrections too, actually. Sometimes I definitely miss that environment. There are definitely a lot of moving parts to that too. And um, I've worked in a sickle cell clinic with kids and there are a lot of moving oh, wow. pieces with that too. So yeah, I'd say, you know, anytime there's like a lot of like 
income-related issues, plus, like, medical-related issues, plus the stigma, which, of course, we have anyway. I think Gen Z is doing a great job of, like, they're even making memes about, like, this is what I told my therapist. Oh, and I'm like, all right. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> uh, <laughs> We definitely. It is crazy. And right? I don't know if you're on, if you have a TikTok account. I do. I can't. I don't know how to use it, but I, I do have one. My kind of girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, we don't. We all know Danielle's not that into TikTok. I get that, but I have um, I I have a personal TikTok account that um, I talk about mental health stigma and all that. And in the following that um, I've gotten, there's a lot of therapists and psychologists and people in the mental health field that are on there that have platforms all about the destigmatizing of you know Mm -hmm. mental health issues and normalizing that it's okay to not be okay. The Gen Z following is amazing on that platform yeah they talk about oh my therapist did that my therapist did this my therapist said that <laughs> like they, they, it's like cool and like my yep. clients that mm-hmm. I say like they love it my therapist is on TikTok like this is really cool and like they talk about all the time what'd your therapist say my therapist said that like it's I a some, conversation for yeah them. I have some teens that I work with who are like so how's your podcast going yeah I'm like good you should listen to yeah. it <laughs> They're like, that's so cool. I told all my friends. <laughs> yeah, I miss uh, I miss using memes in therapy, like with, with Gen Z and like college students. Meme therapy, I haven't trademarked that or anything. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert in whatever that is. So maybe. <laughs> but using memes in therapy, I'm like, man, you know, Gen Z is killing it with, you know, destigmatizing mental health on their own. I love and- it. Yeah, creatively they, too. And they they'll text me me. I say it's acceptable. I always say don't expect a response from me, but I do accept memes. Like you can <laughs> you you could use a little bit of humor and like they'll send me like random TikToks about like what's like seen with it's just so yeah, funny. Yeah, feel free to cool tag us in memes on Instagram. Oh yeah, Danielle to everybody who's listening cuz uh <laughs> that's what I do. Danielle <laughs> and I's entire friendship is based on tagging each other in memes it's constant. I love that I can relate to that I have some friends where that's I mean sometimes it just takes too much energy to even text something like hey how are you especially right now but a meme is just easy I find something that's really funny it's a picture and then I send it boom and then they send like some kind of reaction emoji and that takes a lot less energy sometimes yeah it's like no With great effect all memes and emojis right <laughs> yeah it's so much, but it's how we communicate now it's 2020 yeah the wave of the future yeah less I, is more yeah. I think though it'll be really interesting in the setting that you work in and there's a few things I want to touch on in response to what you said but it'll be really interesting in in a VA setting with these younger generations coming up where they are living in this world where therapy is trendy and it's acceptable mm-hmm. and mental health awareness is like a common thing that people talk about mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see the impact of the military on that generation and the culture that they grow up with and to see how the military mentality with mental health and police too begin to shift um I hope so yeah I hope so yeah I mean I certainly would love for people to just be like you know what I should be able to go to therapy and not feel weird or bad about it and I also should be able to go to therapy without any like job related consequences you know if it's interfering with my work okay we can work through that you know it doesn't necessarily mean you're screwed up for life right and I'm just going to keep screwing up my job and doing what I should be doing to help improve that and yeah so it'll be really interesting I have a lot of hope for the next several years to see how hopefully that transitions yeah definitely I mean like you know I know that the the way that the system works especially with deployments in in certain sectors of the military they are assessed by a psychologist both before and after deployment to make sure that they're fit. But the mentality of the people serving is like, well, we're, we know what we have to say and we'll mm-hmm. just say what we need to, yeah. so, you know, go on this deployment, go on this mission, whatever. And then even though the quote unquote services are provided, there's not yep. services being rendered. Yes. Um and I'm not a military psychologist, but certainly what I've heard is, yes, the services are provided as like a, almost like a, I'm checking off the box, right? Like I'm providing these services, but then I'm still 
you know, being dissuaded from getting those services for various mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Even and people, so, yeah, that's tricky. Even people who transition into different areas of the military post active duty, I think, I think that the mental health services that are provided should definitely be destigmatized and encouraged mm-hmm. because, like, you see a lot of people who transition into like reserves or something national guard whatever something of that nature and then you know they're still fearful of addressing any of the traumatic past that they have because once again it could come back and bite them when it comes to ability to perform their jobs yeah and there then of course there are other populations where there's a lot of stigma and going to get therapy and stuff like that like if we think about various cultural groups and I spent a lot of time kind of I'm really good at calling our field out um (laughs) and I think you know we have to kind of reel ourselves in because they're like I hate even the word stigma related to like these specific populations because we've caused a lot of harm and so we have to like is it really cultural mistrust or is it, well, we actually violated that trust like as a field and we've done that, you know, over a long period of time. And so even just looking at like, what does stigma look like and where does it come from? You know, in some sections it's like, well, I can't be seen as weak and my job might have consequences or something like that. And then others it's, I don't even know if I can, you know, trust the therapist that I'm going to, that they'll understand what I'm experiencing. Sure. I mean, we, we were talking a little bit about that in our last episode. Yeah. You know, there are, there are clinicians out there who in good faith are acting in order to, you know, provide the best level of care for their clientele or, you know, are mandated reporters aware of their mandated reporting duties. And so they try to do what's best, but in the long run, what ends up happening is, you know, it's a DCPMP call or it's a call to Mm -hmm. the police or it's a crisis call when this situation might not actually be that, you know, it might be be symptoms of something else that's going on. Yeah. Or even like, like you mentioned mandated reporting that reminds me of um, like one of my colleagues who used to work with teenagers and like kind of through like child services, right? And so sometimes she'd have to make those calls, right? Like mandated reporting, there was child Mm -hmm. abuse, the kids coming in with bruises, like it's very obvious. So she'd make the reports and then, you know, nothing happens. And so then the kid just comes in with more bruises and stuff like that. And so it's, it's, I mean, of course, ethically, like it makes total sense, right? And there's just these really sticky things that we have to navigate, that, yeah, I mean, in good faith, we're trying to do what we're trying to do. And really, we're just not getting, we're not getting appropriate training. It's like the field, this is why I have my podcast partly is, <laughs> there's a big disconnect between academia and the people that are calling the shots on like, this is what therapy should look like based on the research. And then the people that are actually on the ground, so to speak, and actually doing therapy. So it's a huge disconnect because in academia, it's very conceptual. Like we know there's a problem and I deal. Yeah. There's no concrete steps on like how to fix that (laughs) until very recently. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and it's tough too, because we want to meet our clients where they are. We want to, we want to look at each case as something that's unique because individuals are unique. And of course we want to make sure that we're, giving them what they need rather than just the cookie cutter approach. But at the same time, like we need some sort of framework to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, your episode talking about like men's mental health and stuff like that. Oh, so important. I'm glad that Gen Z on that point too. Like I think men are seeking out therapy services. And I just think that's so important because again, therapy, I mean, it's seen and I think we contribute to this accidentally, right? Because of like insurance and stuff like that. But it seemed like, okay, people come to us when there's a problem. Usually they wait until it's a big problem. And right. so of course it looks like <laughs> something's wrong with you if you go and get therapy. Because right. unfortunately we've, you know, it's just kind of how that system is built. Like I'm not a couples therapist. I have done couples therapy, but 
certainly people wait way too long to go see a couples oh, therapist no my doubt. god <laughs> i stopped seeing couples because no no offense i i give a lot of credit to people who do see that but people feel and i try and stress this all the time on my platform people think that you need to be in a crisis to see someone for help yeah. it needs to be this pressing issue where you can literally just go to therapy just for general maintenance like i have mm-hmm. a lot of clients on my caseload right now that come they they check in once a month just because they enjoy that check-in and the process and getting feedback and it doesn't necessarily you don't have to have something pressing happening yeah I um so I have interviewed uh sex therapists on my podcast before that I know really well and we're doing a follow-up episode next week and I miss the Tories yes um (laughs) yes loving every second Instagram posts. Love it. <laughs> I love them so much. They're great. And so one of them specializes in like open relationships, consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, kind of all of that. And they made it, they both made a really good point. If you're thinking about opening up your relationship to, um, to like letting other people in, or like this week we're talking about one of the topics is BDSM and kink. Why don't you go to a therapist to help that transition? Like, we don't think about that. Right. Well, because especially if somebody is or a couple is just opening themselves up to this, like, yeah. there's going to be bumps in the road. Absolutely. There's going to be some weirdness. And like, mm-hmm. why not navigate it with a professional who specializes in that? Yeah. Or like people that are um, people that are breaking up or divorcing, especially like if their kids or co-parenting, like there's so many reasons to go to therapy that aren't just, you know, like I've waited until the last, you know, the last, I've tried to wait it out as long as I can. And I'm just, the legs below me are breaking and there's nothing else I can do. And so I'm hoping, especially with your podcast too, you know, really spending a lot of time destigmatizing therapy. Like there's so many reasons to go and it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's a crisis or anything like that. And then I think, you know, we accidentally contribute to that because of, like I said, the insurance piece, but also, you know, like using the word symptoms, right? Like we're kind of <laughs> raised on that, but it also kind of applies again, something's wrong, right? right? And so it's a tough line from my perspective to balance between we need some research to kind of really guide where we're going, but we can't totally rely on that because it's just not, it's not realistic. And then we're just, again, kind of perpetuating something has to be wrong with you because that's what that means from the medical standpoint. Like there's something wrong with you for you to get therapy. So it's a, it's a tough line to ride. And I'm not really sure how we merge the two or how it should look in the future, but it is kind of a a sticky area, I think. So we did an episode in our first season surrounding like stigma language and Mm -hmm. It's it was so hard <laughs> to even do that episode because there is so much literally the whole field is filled with it. Yeah. And then yeah. the whole like uh cultural response, at least in like Western culture, is filled with it as well. Like the way that we talk about mental health is riddled with stigma words. And it's like we almost need to find an entirely new language to make it mm-hmm. a little bit more inclusive and accepting, as like, you know, for instance, when treating anxiety, like or depression. These are things that it's not going away. It's part of who you are and it's right. totally fine. It's just a matter of learning how to work with that. Piece and man- yeah. And so it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be pathology, mm-hmm. but, but the whole way that the mental health system, the medical system and society has evolved is so that it's all looked at as an illness. And, it's uh, not. Yeah. and also knowing that like, if you receive a diagnosis, you, you're still a person at the end of yep. the like mm-hmm. you, you're not your diagnosis. The diagnosis is in place, so the so the clinician knows how to best treat it for your best. Yeah. And even with anxiety, like ang- everyone, the majority of this, everyone has anxiety of yeah, some sort. Everyone, everyone has- mm-hmm. yeah. And it just depends on how unmanageable it is for you, whether or not you need more service for that, more help, more feedback, more support for that to learn how to manage it in a healthy way. But I didn't even know what I, I didn't even know I had an anxiety disorder until I was like 28 because it wasn't something that was talked about. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can actually get help for this. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't have to live like this. I don't, 
and it was like almost a relief when you realize like okay this is something that I have like I'm not out of my mind like I just have a little bit more elevated than say the average person does and I can learn how to manage that well this is all personality stuff too like as you were talking Mm -hmm. I was thinking like okay anxiety is a is a feeling it's an emotion Mm -hmm. right it's a it's an emotional experience that we have which is you know from a physiological perspective and a um evolutionary perspective extremely important we need Mm -hmm. to have this right and so why are we looking at it as like oh i have anxiety it's like no anxiety shouldn't be different than happy right you know uncertain or any other emotion that we yeah I, i that's a good point i always find it weird when people say i have anxiety and i'm like okay i'd actually be more concerned if you didn't have any anxiety at all like right I uh, I actually watched the show Lock and Key yesterday. Um, I binge watched the whole first season, oh. and um, it's on Netflix. Yeah, it's and it's my list, and I've and I've not watched yeah. it. I need to. Oh, okay. So there's, it's interesting. Um, I'm certainly not like an expert on film or anything, but there's one part that I think you're gonna find really interesting. So one of the characters, like you can go into your own mind, right? And it's, it's externalized, which is really cool. So like you can open a door or something and then you go in your mind and you get to see what it looks like. So she, uh, takes out her fear, like literally kills it, like takes it out of her mind and kills it. And because she has a, like, she's very anxious at the beginning and it's kind of, you know, getting in the way of things. But then she realizes later what, like whenever she was going to kill it, I'm like, Oh, I actually don't think you want to like take out that whole emotion. So she removes the entire emotion. And then of course, what that means is there are a lot of really bad consequences. And so I think that's a great, um, especially if you have younger clients, I think that's a great example of no, actually, you, you do want some of that because, yeah. like, you know, it, it, it helps. It motivates you to do things. Right. So, like, you know, if you have a deadline coming up, it, it motivates you to get things done. If there really is a life or death situation, uh, like or if I have to slam on my brakes in the car, I actually I kind of need that. Like, right. Well, you know, I always use the example of like if you're getting if you're at a corner and you're ready to walk across the street and you don't have anxiety, you don't care if a car is coming or not. You're going to yeah. walk regardless. Right. And yeah. you die. exactly if you have anxiety you're going to look both ways you're going to be cautious you're going to you know wait for a car to pass and you're going to safely get to the other side exactly yeah that's why I'm like well everyone has anxiety to some extent it's kind of like saying I have happiness I'm like well uh, that's probably good um but like (laughs) when people say I have anxiety I'm like what do you mean by that exactly like what what is what is what does that mean to you yeah yeah, there's always the talk to me about the anxiety feelings situation. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you need to know what it looks like because it looks different on everybody. And it, it depends on how much getting in the way of getting through your day. Oh, 100%. That's how we as clinicians learn how to like manage, help, help someone else see that so they can manage it better on their own. Oh, yeah, 100%. And how to help them distinguish like sometimes it's actually going to be a strength for you and so how do we how do we harness that but so that the alarm bells are not ringing all the time and giving you like false alarms right right yeah right in terms of what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis are the majority of the people that come to you are they voluntary or involuntary or like mandated oh it's usually voluntary um outpatient is all voluntary and then even inpatient it's usually people check themselves in have you ever, so you said you did corrections, right? Yes, I did. I think it's probably an important distinction. I worked in jails and not prisons. Okay. So the people either had not been found guilty yet or they had, but it was, you know, they spent, uh, look, it was for shorter time periods. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you? Yes, yeah, so I worked in a Florida jail. Um, so yes, I have seen bath salts. Um, I have seen people coming off bath salts. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, That's going to be yeah. fun. Yeah, it was, uh, I was a baby master's student. It was like my first practicum experience. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And I think that's why I like seeing really complex and kind of severe stuff because like the threshold that I started with was just like. I had a fairly similar experience. I was working in a university medical center in Long Island on their inpatient psych units. They had, okay. Well, they had, they had. 
four. They had a peed unit, two adult units, and an all-male aggressive unit for people who um, were, you know, struggling with pedophilia, who had some, like, violent crime history related to their mental health, people who were, you know, aggressive in some kind of way, which was a really good time at a fresh 21 <laughs> who was, and I looked like younger than I was and here I am running running a mental health group with uh Zippy the clown so it was it was a good time <laughs> it was good but I did fall in love with the with the mental health like severe mental health world because of that especially because I felt like a lot of the people who were involved with them were medical staff who yep once again, we're not fully aware of what mental health issues really are and look like. And so, you know, I was able to connect with them a little bit differently because they were like, who is this girl who wants to talk to us and like gets us? It was, it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah. I think I like working in an integrated healthcare setting for that reason. And then like for the, the medical staff that are kind of wary of mental health or they're not really sure, I really enjoy the process of kind of, okay, how do I, how do I get you to collaborate with me? So far, the answer has been food. I hope that doesn't spoil my <laughs> secret, but there's always food in medical settings um, and it's never Holy. healthy, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's tricky with medical staff sometimes. I've heard a lot of promising things from younger ones. Um, like they've, uh, from people that are like currently in medical schools, they've been talking more about psychosocial issues, um, social determinants of health. Um, like I have a friend, he'll be on one of my future episodes. I think he wants to be a gastroenterologist. And so when he went through different rotations, like dermatology, for example, he learned what, you know, different rashes or skin conditions would look like on white skin, but then also on like darker shades of skin, which has been missing notoriously from the medical field for a while. And I didn't realize that actually until I listen to this podcast will kill you, which is like my, one of my favorite podcasts. Awesome. We're going to have to take a listen to that. Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. Okay. So yes, it is very nerdy. So I'm going to preface this. I'm like, um, so (laughs) yeah, they talk about infectious diseases and it's a different one each episode. So the episode that really changes for me was Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And, but they have one on syphilis, for example, And so they spend a good time talking about neurosyphilis and it manifests a lot of different ways I didn't realize. And they spend a good time talking about the Tuskegee experiments there. I I forget what it's called, like medical ecologists or something. And so they have like the research piece, they have like the medical knowledge, but then they dip their toes in epidemiology and then psychosocial stuff. And it's like a great marriage of all these things. And then at the beginning, they introduce like a quarantini, like a drink mix that they make specifically <laughs> for like whatever disease they're covering, which is just great for me. That is awesome. That's not good. So you mentioned the cultural stuff. And you said that earlier that what does that look like for you? Like, what exactly do you do when you said the cultural I, I'm getting your words wrong. So so The cultural piece is interesting because depending on the setting that you're working in, like I said, I've I've worked in different settings and I would say certainly college counseling centers and then private practice probably have the most leeway here or some center where the cultural piece is the defining factor, um, the defining focus of therapy. Otherwise, it's tricky because there's a huge focus on quote, evidence-based treatment. And so a lot of times that looks like manualized treatment. And it's actually really tricky to do and be culturally appropriate because Mm -hmm. it's really just, yeah, I can modify it, but number one, how much can I actually modify it? And does it work with this person? And number two, if, for example, especially when we think about like current events, if they're experiencing a lot of discrimination or fear or whatever, or like maybe they have really low Um, income resources, for example, and I'm basically just telling them, yeah, you just need to learn how to better cope with how many external stressors you have that you have no control over. Like that's basically kind of what we're teaching. And so it's, it's tricky. So you either have to find a way to really get creative with the manualized treatment, or you have to supplement it in some way, because the manualized treatment helps with 
you know, my thoughts and stuff that I can control, but then we need something to target the things that I can't control as well. Right. Um, and so that's what I've had the the best success with. I've also incorporated, uh, like, for example, in the multicultural clinic I'm in, I incorporate a lot of pop culture stuff. So Lovecraft Country was a big one. Um, X-Men, I think, is a really good one to use. So I think media can help help people process things in a different way. You know, I mean, I think that's why we like watching TV shows and movies. Yeah. And X-Men was really great because when it first came out in the comics, I'm a nerd, so I'm just going (laughs) to process this. Um, You know, obviously discrimination was like the defining piece, right? And then how do we deal with that? How do we confront it? There are totally different ways that we can do that. And then Lovecraft Country is, you know, the newer show on HBO that was based on the Lovecraft novels, but then they also set it, which was not in the novels, in the Jim Crow era in Chicago. And so you learn about sundown towns, you learn about the green book, like you learn about all these cultural things and the imagery is really intense. Like I'm white and I'm watching this. I'm like, Oh God, this is like really heavy and intense. Mm -hmm. And so for some people, like it's been really therapeutic for them to kind of watch even when it's really painful. And so I think incorporating that stuff can be helpful too. I think the biggest thing is again, like it's tough with the diagnostic piece, right? Because we want to check the box for insurance. And in some ways that can help me picture what's going on, but it's not going to give me the full picture by any means because this book that we used was made by, you know, probably like rich white dudes um, in the field. And so it's, like, yeah. it's not really like how, I mean, they add like the cultural section and like the newest edition, which, which was nice, but doesn't fully capture it. And then, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of language. Like, we still have these health disparities in our field. Like, Black clients are still disproportionately diagnosed with, you know, like, serious mental illness, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Highly biological ones. So then why are they, you know, getting diagnosed? And if you're looking through, like, documentation and stuff like that, you can kind of see some of the biased language that's coming into play there. And so, yeah, it's really tricky. It's you really have to come from a different perspective and help them really define, you know, what it is that's going on with them. Like, what are their strengths? What's important? Like, what are their values? What should therapy look like for them? And even just giving them that control in the room, I feel like sometimes makes the biggest difference, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. I think that, I think that the cultural piece is incredible. And I think that's something that a lot of clinicians don't take into account as much as they should, but As far as you being able to identify with your clients, like for me, I'm also white, but I do have Jewish heritage and Mm -hmm. say that like, you know, I would watch shows like, you know, um, Hunters or something like that or movies related to like the uh, World War II, like thing. And I have to say that despite the fact that I am not uh, practicing Jewish, I'm you know, just Jewish by heritage to think that like, there's some sort of identification there. Like there's some sort of strange generational trauma there where like, I get extremely upset um, thinking that like my own loved ones would have gone through something like that. And so I find that when I can tap into that sort of emotion from my own experiences, while it's not racial, it's still, you know, a, a, a people group that was oppressed. I find that like, it helps me identify with clientele who are experiencing some of those same prejudices. Mm -hmm. Like, do you, how do you handle that? I really try to own the fact that, um, especially because I have like one melanin. Okay. I named her Melanie. (laughs) Um, I have, I'm extremely white, like very Scandinavian Irish. And so I, I really just, I'm, just upfront. Like I I can't, I can't possibly understand this. And so I want to strike a balance between the client educating me on their own experiences, but then also me not relying on that too much because especially right now they might be having to explain that in like every area of their life. And now, Oh my God, I'm like recreating that in therapy. So taking that upon myself too, to read things, watch things. I think, 
that's the tough balance is, okay, how much should I be asking my client to teach me about what they're experiencing mm-hmm. without, you know, putting that burden on them Yeah, you know, like, to do that? It's tough. Yeah. Self yeah. And how much is it our responsibility to ask the client personally? Yeah. 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 One of the, so my dissertation was, was on this. And when you think about like microaggressions or kind of these um, really subtle sorts of discrimination that we do, and we don't even realize we're doing it. It's just biases that we have. The most common one that happens in therapy is that we don't broach cultural differences, Mm -hmm. particularly like race. So we just kind of we just don't ask about it. Right. Like we just, we'll talk about other things like someone's coming in with anxiety. And so we'll ask like, okay, like what is, when does that come up for you? Like how often, what does it look like? Blah, blah, blah. But then we don't broach those cultural differences probably because we're afraid of, well, either it's not on our minds, which is probably common, but then also we may assume if they're not bringing up for bringing it up first and it may not be important to them. And I don't know how to confront this and, you know, sound appropriate. And there's a lot of questions. And again, I think it comes down to we're not being taught these skills and in a concrete way and like how to how to like really just bring it up, you know, just bring it out in the open. And if it's not important to them, like, that's cool. I need to know that, too. Right. Well, I think that as awful as the events of last year were, a lot of the political and you know, social stuff with race and like police and all of that, I think really, at least for me, I can say open the door to talking about those racial differences and experiences Mm -hmm. much sooner than I ordinarily would have. Yeah, it was actually, it was pretty impressive. I don't think we were expecting this, that the American Psychological Association took some pretty bold um, societal stances on that and really, (laughs) and also like really promoted police psychology um it's like a newer faction of psychology I mean I don't think people realize there are so many different types of psychology and actually relatively few of us actually do therapy and uh police psychology is a new one so looking at you know um police officers their mental health like looking at policies related to law enforcement like all kinds of stuff related to that and there's a whole specialized field for that now that's growing Another common misconception that is had is as therapists in session with people, like you said, like you don't think to bring up the cultural issues, the racial issues, stuff like that. And that is actually very important to do. And it becomes a whole argument. And I've seen it across the board, you know, that I don't want to talk about politics. It's Mm -hmm. social injustices and their effect, you know what I mean? So it does affect people's mental health. And some people don't they don't realize that. And I think it's so important, like that type of knowledge to bring to light so that clinicians can understand that. And I, and I don't even want to say it's a generational thing, but it kind of is in a way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some people might not embrace that, but being open to that because this, it is heavily affecting so many people. And I agree with Danielle. I mean, it's certainly changed the way I've approached things. And, you know, my own education and learning and trying to understand in a different way and realizing things. And I won't get into it too much, but Mm -hmm. it's such an important point that you're bringing up and especially in this field. I also think that people, clinicians, are fearful that, like, they're going to get this negative reaction from the client. Like, why are you this out? And to be honest, I haven't had a bad experience Mm -mm. with a client in bringing it up at all. If anything, they're like, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, like, yep. let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me tell you how I'm feeling. Like, I know that you don't get it, but that's okay. Like, thanks for being there for me. You know, I, I ha- yep. had one negative experience with a client of a different race who was in a really difficult place. And it was our very first session. And they elected to not continue with me because I'm white. And that was okay. Yeah. That yeah. Was, I said that from the beginning. It was okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even me just, you know, giving an example of certainly like a, a a bias that I've had that I didn't even think about. We talked about the Tories earlier. Right. And so in my first podcast episode with them, they had talked about like, you know, people aren't assessing, you know, people aren't asking if their clients are in 
you know, open relationships or polyamorous relationships. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I really haven't been, I haven't been asking this. I haven't been asking this question. Like if they just say, oh, I'm married or like, blah, blah, blah. I just kind of assume that that's the, the only person that they're sexually or romantically involved in. And they may be hesitant to disclose it um, because they're not sure how I'm going to respond. And if they're single, you know, maybe they're, you know, sexually involved or romantically involved with multiple people or whatever. And, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm not assessing for this. And it probably has popped up. Absolutely. Like if I hear all the time, like people that are on Tinder, like there are a lot of people looking for, you know, sexual partners or romantic partners for couples or they're looking to join one or something like that. And I'm like, wow, okay. If it's that common, then it probably is in the therapy room and shit. I'm not, I'm not asking this question. That's probably really important. Right. Yeah. I think that so many issues have come up that we just, it, it, you know, it's really important and I can't stress this enough that um, people who work within the mental health field, keep themselves up to date on all of these issues that have come up that are important because you didn't think to assess that before. And like, yeah, wait, maybe I should. And it only makes us better and it keeps us open-minded and it would be a disservice to a person if you don't educate yourself on those things. I'm the first one. I'm humble. Like I know what I know, but like, I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm the first one to like open my mind to different ideas and different approaches because you want to also best meet a person where they are. And you're not doing that if you're not educating yourself on differences. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's so important. Also, I want to um, take this time. You mentioned your podcast a few times. And um, before we wrap up, I want to hear a little bit about your podcast and what your platform looks like. Yeah. So I think it's kind of similar to yours, like we've said. So my podcast is called Revealing the Ivory Tower. So the Ivory Tower basically refers to uh, people in academia, like in you know, college, universities, or people that are just doing research and they're kind of stuck in their own little bubble. They're not really kind of in touch with real life. And I noticed throughout my 5,000 years in school, uh, <laughs> when I would look up research studies, I have a PhD and I would still find a study in my field. And I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. It's so filled with jargon. We write research studies for our colleagues when the whole point is to serve the public. Like that's who should see this research. So they're either not getting physical access to it because the journals charge so much money or they have access to it. But like, I have no idea what you're saying. Like, I just can't understand it. And that disconnect that I mentioned earlier between, Mm -hmm. you know, the people that are proposing these changes. And then a lot of times they're not even doing therapy, which is just concerning to me. And so I wanted to make a podcast where, We make some of this research open to the public in a fun way, in a lighthearted way, mostly, and a way that is understandable, I hope, for like, you know, just the average general person. Um, And then also, one thing that also concerned me, we talked about TikTok. I mean, I just see so much misinformation on there, and it just really irks me. Oh, I cannot. (laughs) And that, that's a whole, I could probably do an entire episode <laughs> that I see. And how many times that myself and other creators have to speak on the misinformation that's out there. Because yes. there's so many impressionable people that are hearing these things. And they also think that they're diagnosing. And they're also trying to diagnose themselves off a, yeah. off a 30 second TikTok. Like that's, that's not the no that no (laughs) yeah I saw one just to give a quick example of a person who was well-intended um and it was a series of like four videos or something it was basically giving stats on I think bipolar disorder ADHD OCD and borderline personality disorder and basically came to like first some of the stats were not accurate or up to date and basically the conclusion was this is all neurodiversity, but there's a lot of sexism. And so that's why there's these diagnoses and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, yes, there's a lot of sexism. And (laughs) there are legitimate differences between these, like the underlying function of these behaviors is really, and that's what should guide your treatment. And so like, I get it on one side. So yeah, there's just like a lot of misinformation. 
Um, and that was the other reason is, or I would listen to podcasts and, um, sometimes in their defense, like the host would kind of corner them. And so they kind of have to answer, but people speaking out of the bounds of their profession, like they don't announce like, this is where my competence or my knowledge are right here. And so I can't really speak to this other thing or I can, but I'm letting you know, I'm not an expert and I'm giving my personal opinion. So that's the other reason for the podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is uh, such a need in such a need in general. I mean, whether it's podcasting or TV shows or radio shows or mm-hmm. any other sort of media, like it's definitely needed. We have a tendency to think that we can Google something and that's enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's what do you tell your like? What would you tell your clients that are googling their their um, medical symptoms? Like, don't do it. Are you talking about? Don't you? do it. I'm talking about you. I stopped doing that. <laughs> I- <laughs> She was like, I smell burnt toast. I think I had a stroke. (laughs) That is a very common thing. I'm very open about my medical um, health anxieties. Um, Now what I do instead of Googling, I contact my friends who are in the medical field because I feel as if I'm at least going to a, a reliable source. There you go. Um, but I do, th- that comes don't up Don't think a lot. that I don't get furious texts about how something's going horribly wrong. <laughs> like constantly, yeah, it's bad. But I do seek therapy. It's disgust. So um, I can manage myself. The burnt toast. She took a while. I love that openness. Like if I, if I, like I will never forget that. We were sitting at staffing and I'm like, I smell burnt toast. I might be having a stroke. And she's like, you know, I smell burnt toast too. She's like, I bet you, I bet you are having a stroke. I'm like, you are the worst friend ever. <laughs> this is horrible wait but my luck I started smelling burnt toast like a few days later and um the apartment that I was living in was above a business and so when I called the non-member for the fire department they sent out like four fire trucks two police officers like the (laughs) the whole town showed up karma and it was like oh my god like there was there was nothing going on (laughs) oh my god we really want to thank you and that's revealing the ivory tower podcast. What is your um, social media handle? Yeah, so um, I mean, you can go on my TikTok, but again, I don't, I don't really know how to use it. I'm trying to learn. So if people want to send me pointers, it's revealing the ivory tower on TikTok, and then on Instagram, it's revealing the ivory tower podcast. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I had fun. Thank you so much for uh, Yeah, this was great. For you're... coming on. And you're such a wealth of knowledge. Like we would I know. love to we would love to... Oh god. That's terrifying, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, but definitely we'd love to have you on again like down the road. I'm so down for that. Yay. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And um, thank you all for listening. If you're interested in learning more about McKenna's social media or her podcast, please visit her on TikTok and on Instagram at Revealing the Ivory Tower and Revealing the Ivory Tower podcast. Her podcast is Revealing the Ivory Tower. (laughs) Feel free to give her a listen. She is awesome. She's got great information. And we will see you all next episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or desire to self-harm, please reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255 for 24-hour support.